We are up to Romans 12. Paul now shifts, everybody agrees, kind of the flavor of the epistle. Those first eight chapters relate to doctrine. Those nine through 11 chapters, dispensation, what God is doing with both the Gentile church and Israel in the world, his plan kind of through the ages. And he's brought us to the place now in chapter 12 where he says, I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So as he transitions now, he's going to talk about, he's talked about doctrine, dispensation. Now he's going to talk about duty, what we need to do as Christians, what, what he's already laid out, what type of response that should have in our lives. Belief will always determine our behavior. If we believe something, we will act accordingly. If you believed your house was on fire, you would act a certain way. If you believed there was a tiger in this room, you would act a certain way. If you believe something, it will have a, a subsequent reaction or action in your life. The things that we believe truly, if we believe God, who he is, what he says, then that's going to mean something in our lives. So Paul, he says, I beseech you, therefore, this this is uh, one of those important therefores in the book, chapter 3, verse 20, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, now chapter 12, verse 1. He's shifted in each of those places. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He is pleading with them. I beseech you. Before he gets into, we're, we're probably a lot of us familiar with these verses the call to be a living sacrifice, what that's going to look like, what he's, what he's pleading with them for is really going to run out through the rest of the epistle. So not just here, but here in a particular way, he's going to be pleading in regards to the body of Christ, pleading in regards to how we relate to one another individually, pleading, pleading in regards to how we relate to government, how we relate to uh, other believers, mature and less mature in the body, is going to really, through the rest of the epistle, be pleading with us to respond in certain ways. But the remarkable thing is it's not just Paul pleading with the Roman Christians. This is the Holy Spirit pleading with people. God is pleading in the Bible with his people to live, to act, to understand something. And the Bible just takes it for granted that a Christian who hears these things will have Paul's plea echoed in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, that they should know these things are true, that it's the type of thing where we say, yes, yes, I know that. And so hopefully for us, these are important reminders. He says, he pleads with these brethren, his brothers and sisters in Christ, not some strangers, and he's pleading with them, notice, by the mercies of God. So his brethren, which is all of them, old, young, rich, poor, near to God, far from God, those walking, sanctified, those backslidden, unclean, 
He's pleading with all of them. And he pleads with them according to the mercy of God, because every single one of us needs the mercy of God. He just finished showing at the end of chapter 11 that everyone was a disobedient person who needed the mercy of God. We were all under disobedience. We were all marked. There was no special segment group, Gentile or Jewish, that was doing everything correct that God could slip certain favors to. All were disobedient so that he could have mercy on all. So as he begins his pleading, he pleads here by the mercies of God. And every single person that submits themselves to the Lord particularly as a living sacrifice, has to do so by his mercy and in his mercies. And every one of us at some point is going to feel condemned, feel like we're falling short of this, feel like for some reason Satan is convincing us that we should not present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. We're an imperfect sacrifice. God already knows that. Maybe you just feel like, I knew better, I made a mess of my life. Well, here's what God is doing. He's pleading with you to be persuaded by his mercy. Don't look at yourself. I am calling you, by my mercies, to present yourself as a living sacrifice. Mercies that are new every morning. He is humble enough. That when we make a wreck of our lives and then finally come back to him when our life is really worth nothing and say, okay, Lord, I'll give it to you to say, okay, I'll take that. Where the rest of us would say, I don't want it now. Why are you going to come back to me when you have nothing? Of course, of course you'd come back when you have nothing, right? That's, that's our attitude. God's attitude is, sure, I have mercy. I, I want you to be in the right place, and the right place for you is to present yourself to me, body, mind, and spirit. That's the place where we belong, no matter where we have been or what we were doing, or maybe we were doing that at one point and we're not doing it now. Again, Satan will cause anything to come into our minds to convince us that for some reason, maybe this is good for other people, particularly Christians that are really doing it. But for me, God doesn't really want me to do this. Or it's not going to work when I do. Paul says, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your, your bodies a living sacrifice. Present means to bring near the word it was used in the Old Testament sometimes of the sacrifice that would be transferred from the worshiper to the priest for inspection. So we present ourselves to him for his use, for his inspection. And he's merciful. And he's the one who has already taken us, as Paul has laid out and justified us. And he's just in doing that because he paid for us. And he's already, yes, put to death our flesh in Christ so that we can walk in new life, so that we don't have condemnation in him. Everything that he's already talked about, he assumes that we're remembering. And so the Holy Spirit is looking for 
your body. He's, he's the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have a body. He wants to use our bodies. So we present our bodies to him, and he then takes those and he uses them, and he, it becomes the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Paul had already exhorted them to do this. He said, present yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You, you had given your body to sin at one point and your spirit, your nature was totally corrupt. Now you're saved. You're a child of God. You're a brother or sister of Paul's. And God has pulled you out of Wherever you were, each, law, each of us lost our own way, and he's given you new life. So now you can present your body to him as a living sacrifice, not a sacrifice that's dead, living. Certainly in the Old Testament, those sacrifices were dead. We offer something that's alive. Sometimes we wish we were dead to things. Lord, I wish this pain or this attitude or this whatever was just dead and gone. Uh, we are living sacrifices. That means I have to live and give myself to him day by day. Again, I do that in his mercy. Lord, I'm a mess. You already know that. This is what you got. You told me to bring this to you. So I'm presenting it to you, not because of what I can do, but because you asked me to and because of who you are. As a holy sacrifice, you notice, the Old Testament, certainly the sacrifices were not always holy. Some were unclean. There were many that were not supposed to be made. You and I have been made clean in Christ Jesus. We can come as a holy sacrifice and as acceptable to God. Acceptable sacrifices, again, were not always, all sacrifices were not acceptable in the Old Testament. There are times where God said, I don't want your sacrifices anymore. I don't want your feasts. I don't want your fastings. They were done in hypocrisy. They were done with the wrong heart. But from the sons and daughters of God, filled with his spirit, he's brought us all to this point. God says, now you can give acceptable sacrifices. Before, before we were saved, before we had his spirit, we could not offer anything pleasing to him. Even, if you, even a person who's unsaved that does good civil things, that is not what God wants from them. He wants repentance, and then new life in his Holy Spirit. So now that we have the Holy Spirit, now we actually have the ability to offer something that's pleasing to God. Now you can actually do something that is well-pleasing to him, that's acceptable. He's brought us to that point. And I think in a lot of ways, God is much happier with our service than we would typically think. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to find that the Lord is much more pleased in some of the smaller things that we were doing, our weakest attempts to share the gospel with somebody, our weakest attempts just to serve him, bumbling through, trying to seek him or surrender ourselves to him in one way or another. You know, you think of the, the widow with the two mites, and Jesus' perspective of her and her offering was way different than what anybody would have imagined. And when we 
stand before him one day, I think we're going to see that, man, if, if I knew that the simplest surrender of myself to him pleased him that much, I would have done it a whole lot more. Because it was really difficult for him to come to earth as the son of God, live the life he lived, die the death he died, carry the cup and drink it. That was difficult. You and I, we just live off the benefits of that. There's some hardship in our Christian life, but whatever hardship we go through is nothing compared to what he went through to make it possible for us to do the simplest things in service to him. So he has gone through so much to make the way possible. When we step into it, it's pleasing to him. It's well-pleasing. It's acceptable to God. And it is our, he says, reasonable service. So reasonable has the idea of rational and also spiritual. The language kind of lays both of those out there. But based on everything that Paul has already told us, this type of presentation is totally rational and both spiritual. It's there's nothing about surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ that doesn't make sense. If all this is true, if the Son of God has paid for us and we had no standing before him, we were all guilty before God, we had no ability on our own to make our way toward him, and he has paid the price and now given us new life in his spirit and put us in the place where we are going to be both, or excuse me, not only justified and sanctified, but glorified, and all those things are sure in him, then it's a pretty reasonable thing for me to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to live my life for you in response to that. I, you gave me my life. I surrendered it in sin. And then you purchased it back for me and gave it to me again in an even greater way. That's a pretty remarkable thing that he's done. So, the, the Christian life of surrender, the life of a living sacrifice, there's nothing weird about it. Yeah, we, there's all these challenges to sometimes Christian life. Well, how come these things happen or how come this didn't happen or how come people face these difficulties? And there's, there's legitimate, like I said, hardships in the world. But when you place that next to what the Bible actually says, that, again, this is as close to hell as we're going to get. And that everything that we face here isn't actually even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, then it's really reasonable to give your life to Jesus. Every single part of it. It makes perfect sense. If you could prove Jesus wasn't who he said he was and he didn't rise from the dead and he didn't pay for our sins, yeah, even Paul admits that Christianity doesn't make any sense. But if the rest of what Paul has said is true, then this actually makes perfect sense. Why does anybody live for Jesus at all? Well, because of chapters 1 through 11, because of what he's already shared. I live for Jesus because of what he has done for me. We love him because he first loved us. We can get caught up in other stuff, 
But really, it's pretty simple. If I start to live for Jesus for any other purpose, it's going to fall apart. If I live for Jesus so that, you know, I can be popular or have a husband or wife or have a good life here or just to escape certain issues, eventually that falls apart. If I'm seeking Jesus just because people are nice to me or I like community or if, I, if, it, if Jesus is a pathway to something else, as it is sometimes in terms of some people's Christian life, eventually that will fall apart. But if I serve him because of who he is, he's not a path to something. He is the something. He's my savior. I serve him because of who he is, because of what he's done, because he's first loved me. Then, actually, what Paul's saying here is, is really reasonable. It's not some super hard charge. It's not like Christianity needs some really difficult things to do now. Let me try to think of something hard. Yeah, try being a living sacrifice. That's not what Paul is doing. He's just saying this, this actually makes perfect sense. You now surrender your body to him like a living sacrifice. The law of the spirit of life is working in you. And the new life that he's given you, you just allow that to be worked out. You give it back to him. You present yourself to him, holy and acceptable. It is your reasonable service. And he's going to give a little more detail more now on what that looks like in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here's what a living sacrifice looks like. First of all, they are not conformed to the fashion of this world. The, the idea there in the language is, uh, one guy translated it, we're not to be schemed together with the world. I'm not jumping into all the world's schemes caught up in everything that they're doing. And every age has its own fashion. Galatians 1.4 says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father. We, we have an evil age that we live in, and every age has its own form of evil. Paul's age had its forms of evil. And in, in his age, the the pressure of the evil in the world was conforming people into that mold. Ephesians 2, 2 says, in which, in which once you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. When we were unsaved, we were living according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that was in the world. Unsaved people in Paul's day lived like unsaved people in Paul's day. And if we were unsaved in this day and age, we'd do the same thing everybody else is doing. We'd be given over to drugs, the heroin, the fentanyl, we'd be given over to the pornography and to the sexuality that's in the world and all the sexual morals there. Everything that's a part of our age, if we're, if we're unsaved, we would be conformed to that image that form. And there's a pressure that is moving us into those different forms. In our world, it's happening. Uh, even just the unsaved world, they can't fight it either. They're not in control of it. Uh, just, I think it was this week, Facebook, who owns Facebook and Instagram, updated their um, usage. So 
that people who are trans and non-binary can show uh, their breasts and, and their tops half clearly because it's unfair for a, a male person who sees themselves binary like me to be able to have my shirt off at the beach and for them to not be able to do that. So now on Facebook and Instagram, you're allowed to. Because, not because they just are evil or trying to control things, it's because they're unsaved and the pressure of this world is forming them. They're, they're not forming it. They are being formed by it. It's happening in the church. Churches are, are making direct statements such as, we're going to keep the statement of faith the same, but we will allow you to bless gay marriages or to have abortion. or So we will keep our statement of faith, but we will not stop you from behaving in a way that goes totally against the statement of faith. Want to know why? Because they're being conformed to the image of this world, the evil of the day and age that we live in. And you and I, if we jump on our entertainment, TV shows, movie, music, stuff is getting worse and worse. You want to know why? Because it's all being conformed. It's all being pressured. It's all being pushed to a certain type of image a certain direction. There's a gravity to it all. Unsaved world, church world, individual lives. And what Paul says is, if I'm going to be a living sacrifice, I cannot be conformed to this world. I must be transformed by the renewing of my mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We understand that the life of Christ in us puts us at odds with this world. He was not accepted here. He was not at home here. He faced headwinds when he was in this world. This world rejected and crucified Jesus Christ. And he was perfect. And the spirit of this world still fights against the spirit of Jesus Christ. So, to be a Christian in the way God is calling me to will, of course, have a certain level of loneliness or feeling out of place or feeling out of joint with the things of this world. It will go against the conforming priorities and morals and pressure and direction of the current world that we live in, always. Whether we see it or not, whether we realize it or not sometimes more directly than others. But the difference is, while people in the world don't understand why they can't find peace here, when they have a sober moment and they realize that they're leaving this world and they can't stay here forever, and that their life is really more valuable than just giving themselves to sex or money, they have no answer. The Christian understands why he is a stranger and pilgrim in this world. And even if there's some pressure there, even if I break down for a little bit, even if I got to go sit in the corner and cry for a second and come back and put myself together, I, I understand why I have this here. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Dwelling Man, The Dwelling Place of God, says this, the weakness of so many modern Christians is that they feel too much at home in the world. 
in their effort to achieve restful adjustment to unregenerate society, they have lost their pilgrim character and become an essential part of the very moral order against which they are sent to protest. The world recognizes them and accepts them for what they are. And this is the saddest thing that can be said about them. They are not lonely, but neither are they saints. The Spirit of God in us is going to direct us to be transformed into something that is different than this world. The word there for transformed is the same that's used in the transfiguration of counts of Jesus. And it's also only used other than that in 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Our process of being conformed into the image of this world was halted at salvation. Something new happened. We received the new spirit. We received the new life. We were born again. The new life that came to us through our salvation in the Holy Spirit is now conforming us, as we read already in Romans 8, into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And as I'm being more and more conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, I'm being less and less conformed to the image and likeness of this world. It is a process. It doesn't happen all at once. It would be nice if it happened all at once. Sometimes we wish that it happened all at once. Or you hear somebody got, has a really radical testimony. It seems like it happened all at once for them. That's not how it happens. Paul says in Corinthians, it happens moment by moment. As we see his glory, as our eyes are open to who he is and his truth, we begin to see where we're not like him. But then he gives us mercy. And in his spirit, he begins to change us into his image and likeness. And we're encouraged to continue to be transformed in that image and likeness, not to turn back to the old way of life. The verbs here are both passive. It means we're submitting kind of to either or. Either the influence of the world spirit or the influence of the Holy Spirit, and each will have its work on us. If I sit out in the sun, I will get tan. Well, mostly I get sunburned, but you understand what I'm saying. Right? I, if I am under the sunlight, I am submitting myself to that, and it will naturally have a process that takes place. If I submit myself to the Lord, to his truth, to his word, to obedience, to the things that he calls me to, it will have an effect in my life. And if I submit myself to the influence of the world, willingly and purposefully, it will also have an effect on me. And it will be conforming us one way or the other. There's no middle ground. You can't serve two masters. If I have a garden, I'm tending it, and it will tend to produce fruit. If I let it go, it will tend to wilderness. There's no middle ground. It's either going one way or the other. And in our Christian lives, we are either being conformed to this world or we're being transformed by the renewing of our mind 
that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Certainly it's a process. Certainly that process should deepen and grow. It's the only true safeguard against being conformed into the world, being transformed. What is the safest place for me to live as a Christian in this world? Is to live in a place where I am being transformed into his image and likeness. That's it. Because otherwise, I will be conformed into this present evil age. A lot of it begins with the renewing of our mind, which is so often polluted and deceived and wounded in this present evil age. God is, I will say this, patient with our wrong thoughts of him. He knows we, you know, we grow up in this world and we have all these things kind of thrown at us. Your, your thoughts are a certain way about God, about love, about the purpose of life. And then when God saves you and pulls you out of those things, you have to have your mind renewed. All these things have to begin to change. Some of us have been in scenarios where people have taught us wrong things about Jesus Christ himself or the church, legalistic or more liberal levels of that. And you have to begin to work through all those things. Your mind has to be renewed in what true thoughts of him are. And he's patient. The disciples had all types of wrong thoughts about Jesus. And he was patient with them, teaching them who he really was. That word for renewing is only used one other time in the scripture. It's in Titus 3, 5, where it tells us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I love that. He knows who you are. And in his mercy, he saved you. And then he washes and he begins to renew you through the Holy Spirit. Right? This is, God is up for the renewal project he took on. This is the ultimate HDTV house flip right here. Okay, he, he understands who you are. He understood that when he got you, things were a mess. But he's working into this beautiful image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And he is going to, if you allow him to, if you submit yourself to him and to his processes, conform you, renew your mind, renew your thoughts, teach you who he is, help you to put on who he is. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 say, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and you have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We're, we're putting on something different. We had all types of thoughts before. We need to realize those thoughts could be very wrong. Lord, I need your truth. What is a Christian life supposed to be? Right here, we're, we're learning it. And I need to now be conformed to this. And I will then prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The outcome of this process is a life that is pleasing to God. Proving out in actuality the willed life of God. If somebody begins to look and be able to say, that's the type of life God wants from somebody. And it only comes through him and through his spirit. It's, again, a lifelong process because nobody totally reaches that image until we're there in glory. 
but it is the goal that we're shooting for. And Paul knows that in the process of that, we need a certain level of humility. That's why he says in verse 3, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Paul looks at his own life in, in the Lord's hands and he says, the grace given to me, which was his spiritual gift, his apostleship. He talks about it in one five and 15.15 in here. But he's going to link that if you just skip down a little bit in verse 6. He'll say, having then gifts differing according to the grace given to us. So he sees in the body of Christ, he's like, look, this is the grace given to me. And in the same way God has given something to me, he's, giving something, he's given something to us. All of us in relation to one another. So both individually and together, God has given us grace for something. This life in the body of Christ, he's going to build into. And where I fit in the body of Christ. But he knows when he begins to talk about those things, one of our first problems is going to be how we think about ourselves. So what he says is, I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. He knows that one of our main problems with other believers is going to be pride. And uh, we are uh, called out of the world, not to seek our own glory, but to seek his glory, the honor, the reward that comes from him. And, and the largest kind of environment we do that in, particularly, is the church, the most direct environment, I guess. And in our progress, we also have our minds transformed about ourselves. I stop thinking of myself more highly than I ought. I also think of myself soberly. I don't think of myself too high, and I don't think of myself too low. Sometimes we act, you know, somebody who's super prideful just bugs everybody. But somebody whose pride works itself out in insecurity is also a problem, even though they might not be as annoying as somebody who's really braggadocious. So what, what Paul says is, here's what real humility looks like, seeing yourself soberly. My opinion of me should be God's opinion of me. I should see myself the way God sees me. The wrong view of ourselves will give us a superiority complex or an inferiority complex. The right view of myself will not make me complex at all. It'll just make me simple. That God, whatever you made me, that's what I am. It would not actually be... Uh, prideful for Paul to admit he's an apostle. It, it would be some type of weird pride for him to act like he wasn't an apostle. It would be prideful for him to abuse his apostleship, but it would also be sin for him to ignore his apostleship. Paul needed to see himself as who God made him. He didn't have a choice in that. He admitted it's all by God's grace, but I'm an apostle, and I am called of God to play that role. And to not play that role is not some type of humility. 
It's some false type of spirituality. And so true humility was to not think of yourself more highly or lower than you're supposed to be. I'm supposed to be God conscious, not self-conscious. We get too easily, we become self-conscious, thinking of what everybody else is thinking of us. My thoughts are supposed to be God conscious. God, what have you made me? What have you given to me? What have you put into my hand? To see that each one has been dealt a measure of faith. Notice, not of intellect, not of skill, faith. And to recognize that in simplicity and obedience and serve him with it. It's not humility if you're a really gifted person who can play the guitar and sing to act like you can't play the guitar and sing. It wouldn't be humility for Pastor Joe to act like he wasn't a pastor. What, what we're called to do is to look at ourselves soberly. Lord, where do you have me? What have you made me? How can I serve you? How can I be a living sacrifice? And he's going to build into that, verse 4. He says, for as many, for, or excuse me, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Paul says this gracious gift of faith is, is supposed to be immediately used in the body of Christ. We are members, he says, of the one body in Christ Jesus. There is one body of Christians in the world, true Christians. We got all our denominations and things and all our church names. You know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, whatever you call yourself. The, God looks down, he sees the heart, and he knows who's actually born again. He knows the wheat and he knows the tares. He knows who's truly his son and daughter and who isn't. It's not hard for him to see whose spirit they have. There's one fold, or many folds, one flock. Many branches, one tree. Many stones, one temple. Many soldiers, one army. Many stars, one system. Many citizens, one kingdom. Many plants, one garden. Many saints, one church. Many births, one family. Many members, one body. And if I'm saved, I then become a part of that body. I don't, I don't have to sign up on somebody's list for membership. I'm a member whether I like it or not. I, get, I become a part of his body. And that's okay. People have their membership things, right? They just, your tradition can't make the word of God of none effect. Then it becomes a problem. There's one body. When I'm born again, I'm in it. And we now are the body of Christ. Notice he says, all the members do not have the same function. Verse 5, so we being many are one body in Christ. There's a lot of hype out there for people to become the body of Christ. We don't need to become anything. God has already made unity. We just need to recognize it. I am already unified with every true believer on the face of the earth. What I need to do is live like that. And more particularly in relation, certainly, to the local body where God might have put us. But Christian unity is already and only established 
in the work of Christ Jesus. We're just called to acknowledge it. The Bible doesn't say we should be a body. It says we are the body of Christ already. So this is important. You don't just have a savior. This is how it becomes practical. If that seems a little theological, you have a head. You are connected, whether you like it or not, if you're actually born again, to the head who is Jesus Christ, which means he's got a part for you to play. Everything in your body does something. We're all members, notice he says, but we don't all have the same function. You might not think about your body a lot, but there's a lot of little things that if they go wrong, oh man, life has some problems. <laughs> like, I don't know what an adrenal gland is, but until it goes wrong, right? Or pituitary gland, or you, you don't even think about your fingernails much until one gets ripped off, then you're going to think about it a whole lot. We, we all have a really important job to play. We have an important place. You are an essential part of the body of Christ. You have a purpose in Jesus Christ, whether you like it or not. Now, you can escape it or you could try to ignore it, but it doesn't matter. This is what you are. So you should be responsible with it. And you should see it and say, okay, God, you have made me a part of the body of Christ. We are, he says again in five, individually members one of another. I am connected to everybody in the body of Christ. And my renewed mind is now seeing myself in immediate and indivisible relation with the body of Christ. That means I'm not divided from it. I'm not going outside of it. I should never as a Christian see myself outside of the body of Christ. It's sad. There are people who get hurt in a church or by other Christians. And, and what they do is they begin to take this unbiblical place of being outside of the body of Christ. They're a critic, or I'm not like those hypocrites, or the us-them type thing, or I can exist outside of this thing. No, you, you actually can't. And you're directly called to be a part of this by the head not by anybody else, by Jesus Christ. And all of us have our part to play. And when one member hurts, we all hurt. When one member is suffering, we all suffer. Sometimes that might seem a little bit more obvious with certain members. But what this is saying is God isn't encouraging any type of division in what he has united. I am to see myself individually as a member of the body of Christ. He is my head, and nothing will change that. That doesn't mean we can't correct people or call them out, or it doesn't even mean that we can't do church discipline. That's all a part of what Jesus Christ says. But what it means is I'm united to him in purpose and function. I'm essential. He has a purpose for my life, and he wants me to understand that and to see it and to take my place in it because it becomes a blessing to me and to others. Again, he says back in four, all the members do not have the same function. Again, then in five, we're individually members of one another. We're not all the same thing. Just like my human body is not all the same thing. It's not all an eye or all a mouth, he'll use that example later. 
And he says then in six, having gifts differing, he's making the point, we are all very different. We're connected in a way that you can't take us apart, but we're all very different. That means I need to be connected to people who are different, not just in race or color, different likes, different attitudes, different gifts. Sometimes we get, we get annoyed about those things. Like, okay, he could be a part of the body, but like, I want him to be on that side of the body and not near me. Well, guess what? God didn't give us the privilege to conform other people into our image and likeness. So I'm not supposed to dominate my brother and sister to conform them into what I like. God has placed every single person individually in his body, uniquely. And they are meant to function differently on purpose. Because those differences, those purposeful differences in God's grace are what make us both uniquely helpful and uniquely dependent. I, as an individual, should have a unique role in the body of Christ, both local and collective. Whatever that is that God would have me to play, I play it as only I can, because I've been created uniquely in his image and likeness. But because I'm unique, that also means there's a whole lot of things I'm not that I need other people to be collectively. And God gives me those weaknesses so that I can be dependent on the body in the way that he wants me to. And if I think of myself too high or too low, I'm going to cause problems. If I can see myself soberly, okay, God, on my hand. Okay, God, I see where my place is and where my place is not. Then I'll become a blessing to the body of Christ. I will have purpose, unique purpose and service to him. And I will also find the blessing of the things that I'm not prepared or gifted for, to have those made up with believers around me. And, you know, for 40 years of my life, that's been true. It's pretty awesome to be a part of a body of Christ with a lot of godly men and women who play the roles that God has called them to play. That's a huge blessing. And you and I are supposed to see ourselves this way, not, not separate from this, because to become separate from the body of Christ puts me separate from the head. If you see a sheep that's away from the flock, is either lost or sick or dying. It's not a good excuse for it to be out there by itself. And you and I, we should have, you know, what the world calls a team spirit. We should recognize the other believers that we're connected to, both right here in our local fellowship, but also that you would meet around the world. You should be thankful for them. And you recognize that they're a part of who God made you and also what he's doing in the world. So you and I, we're members of one another. It is the way God has made things. It's not the way it should be. It's the way it is. And I need to live in relation to that. 
and surrender and use the gifts according to the grace that is given to us. Whatever God has given to you. And Paul's going to go into a little list here of some of these gifts. Uh, I will just mention, this isn't an exhaustive list. Paul just wants to name a couple to, to expand the point that he's making. First uh, Corinthians 12 through 14, certainly Romans here, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, each of those have a little list of gifts in the body of Christ. They're probably not exhaustive. There's probably other gifts. Nobody has all the gifts. We have unique ones given by God, and he's the one who chooses to give them. And they all are used on different levels and functions. So he goes through here. He says, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. He's going to go through here and just try to encourage us. Okay, if, if this is what God has given you, then use it. Prophet was somebody who sees something the way God sees it. And then tells, either foretelling, future telling, or present telling. The prophet, very often they weren't just telling the future or things that people didn't know. They were giving a message for the time. The prophet was coming and saying, this is for you right now. This is the truth that is imperative for you at the moment. And it was important that you heeded the prophet. Because if you didn't, usually something really bad happened. God gives people that gift. There's plenty of bad versions out there, but there's the true versions of that. Ministry, this is simply serving in all its various ways. The word is used of elders, deacons, and other people in the scripture. And it just has the idea of serving others. True ministry is self-giving, not self-gratifying. Again, if I'm, if I'm showing up to serve for profit or for promotion or for other people to give me thanks, or so that, you know, I can prove something about myself or, you know, move up some level or something, I'm going to get burnt out real quick. And I'm going to be very frustrated. I come to serve to give. I'll talk with people in the ministry. Uh, when I did senior high, I had a fairly large staff of people that jumped in. And sometimes I'd have to have a conversation with somebody. Are you ready to minister or do you need ministry? Those are two different things. Like it's okay to be a person who needs ministry. I need to grow. I need, the, I need the Lord to minister to me. But when I step out to be a servant, I'm not doing it so that people love me. I'm coming to give, to serve the Lord. And if, if you're doing it for some other reason, you get real frustrated real fast. Because people aren't going to respond the way that you want. But if you serve the Lord, you're all right. That's what you're there for. A minister, somebody who's there for ministry, is self-giving. Are we ready for ministry? Then we should minister. We should serve in whatever way we can step in. He who teaches on teaching. So uh, that could be pastoral teaching. The Bible talks about women teaching the younger women. It could be somebody teaching Sunday school. There's all levels of teaching. Hey, you know, if you try to teach and you confuse people or put them all to sleep, or the thought of teaching makes you think of dying, then that's probably not your deal. No, that's fine. So 
but there's a gift there. If that's what God gives you, then you should use it. Exhortation is the next. He who exhorts in exhortation. Uh, the exhortation is a, an appeal to the will. We need these folks in church. These are the people who bring the hype in a positive way. And they get things moving. Right? You, you can know the right direction, but it's really nice to have somebody with a gift of exhortation as you're moving the right direction. We need these folks in the body of Christ. He who gives with liberality. The idea is not reluctantly, not with strings attached. That givers are a great gift to the body of Christ. They in themselves become God's provision for his work. When God wants practical provision given, somebody with the gift of giving steps in. He who leads with diligence, the word their lead has the idea of ruling or administrating. These are the people who run stuff. We need some people who can run stuff, take that responsibility. They're good with organizing, good at administrating. Some people, that is the last thing in the world they want to have to deal with. They just want to be told what to do, right? Tell me where I'm supposed to. I don't want to try to organize any of this. Don't show me any numbers. You know, just tell me where to stand and hand things out. That's your serving. And then we need some people who can run stuff with diligence, right? If, if you try to lead something and you're not diligent, oh, I forgot that. I didn't get, you're not a leader. That's great. You found out the gift that's not yours. Work on some other ones and find your place in the body of Christ. And if you get angry about it, you're like, I am a leader. Maybe you're not thinking of yourself soberly. Mercy. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, certainly you can't be merciful to somebody and be an Eeyore. Um, you should have joy in the Christian life, but we need compassionate people. People are going to show mercy. Yeah. Particularly the leader types to bring along the mercy type with them. That's really helpful. I've ran mission trips places, you know, you got a young girl crying over something that seems really little and not important. It's nice to have a mom there that's merciful, that can take her under her arm and pray with her and be kind because other people don't have the mercy they need right then, right? This is, this is a gift that God gives and the Bible acknowledges all these might not be as important in the moment per se. The Bible says to covet the best gifts. Paul said, I would rather prophesy than say a word in tongues that nobody understands. There, there are times where something might be more important in the moment. But all these spiritual gifts are equally pleasing to God because they're all from him. This is the point. When Jesus Christ wants to get something done through his body on earth, because that's what he's working through now. He gives a gift that is already his. What I mean by that is this. When Jesus Christ sees his people on earth like sheep without a shepherd, he gives somebody the gift of pastor-teacher. When he sees people that are unsaved, that need to hear the gospel, he gives someone the gift of evangelism. When he sees people who are broken and he has compassion for them, he gives someone his mercy. It's his gift. It's his life. And he gives it to you and says, do this on my behalf, in my spirit. When he wants his stuff, 
run with diligence, he gives somebody the gift of administration. The gifts that God gives are his. They're his graces. They're his heart. They're his life. So I can't take a gift that's his and say, I don't want to use this. Jesus, I don't want to show your mercy. I want to lead stuff. It's a literal affront to who he is as the Savior. So you and I, who are going to hell outside of Jesus Christ, with no real life, nothing in us that could connect to God, who have been saved, washed, cleansed, made his sons and daughters, brought into his purposes for life and connected to his body. And then he says, serve me like this. I'm going to give you a gift according to a measure of faith. And I want you to faithfully do this, live this for me. It's important that we see our role. God has given you a place. If you're his son, if you're his daughter, if you don't know what that is, then just pray and ask him and say, like at the beginning, God, I'm giving myself to you a living sacrifice. Have mercy on me. Show me what that means. Renew my mind. Transform me so that I could do this in a way that's pleasing to you. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for connecting us to you in a way where we'll never be separated. Thank you for connecting us with one another, Lord. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, tonight. Bless them in yourself. And thank you for giving us yourself and your mercy. Thank you for your patience with us. And I pray that you would teach each of us, Lord, to do this. Certainly, Lord, don't let us be conformed to this world. We don't want, Lord, what's there. Let us be transformed into your image and likeness. We want what's in you. You know what that means for each of us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.